What a week. Yeah, you might have referred you might have been referring to the week that was yesterday. Um, <laughs> I was I was referring to the week since we last recorded. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Mm. Yeah, it's Time been off meaning. So, sure. And um Hmm. Yeah, it's been a while. I think the last time we recorded, we were talking about the potential exponential growth of a certain of a certain worldwide virus. And now here we are talking mm. remotely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. You know, frankly, Joe, I just got tired of um, of paying the monthly uh, the monthly fee for the hosting. I'm like, we got to use this. We got to oh, get back to. That's a great point. Like if you're paying for it, you might as well do it. Exactly. And so, and so here and so here we are. And the and let's face it, the fans have been clamoring for it. <laughs> ah, yes. For some definition of the word fan and some definition of the word clamor. <laughs> I think that's absolutely right. I, I I just texted you this morning and said, let's let's just record. Let's just let's just chat because we love chatting together. We've chatted together a few times over the course of the, these low many months. That this is true. And occasionally I'm wishing why don't we just we should have just recorded this because yeah. you know this is a fun conversation. Exactly. Chat some more. We've chatted before, we'll chat some more. The the kind of listener that we've had since the let's face it, since the beginning who's been frustrated with our nonsense. You know how every few months there'd be someone who would either leave a review or would contact like, you know, I like it when you guys talk about law, but like you basically don't otherwise be human beings on air. Right. Let's, they're going to be frustrated with this episode because I got no, like I said, I got no agenda. Mm. I don't even, we may not even talk about law. This may evolve if we keep doing this, Joe. And I, I don't, I think we should just plan on doing a daily show from here on out. This may evolve into a non-law based. Oh, great. Just conversation about nonsense or whatever. Yeah. I say we lean into that brand, that the, the most hated part of our brand. We lean into sounds, it. I think that sounds great. Um, everyone else is leaning into their hatefulness. Why, why shouldn't we? Um, and, uh, you know, just everyone jump in the pool, as it were. Um, daily, I have a little problem. But <laughs> well, you're, thinking twi- you're thinking twice daily, like a morning update and then an afternoon update. Like yeah, a, I feel like a morning really edition and I don't understand why you're trying to, you know, tie my wings to my body right out of the gate. It's just like, come on. Yeah. Hourly (laughs) (laughs) check-in. Why are you aiming so low? You've got things to say. You've got, you've got stories to tell. Mm, mm. And why should I, why why should I restrain you? Is Is there anything else in the world other than stories? I've been having this feeling lately, this creeping feeling that everything is everything to a first approximation anything worthwhile in human life is either a narrative already or readily narrativizable <laughs> narrativizable i like that and so isn't stories all there is isn't it stories all the way down to hell with turtles it's stories well stories may be all you see that, that i think that's the way to look at it. yes I, I i i agree i think narratives are central to our identities and our identities seem to be what we carry around with us a lot, maybe for for ill, but but that's yeah, I think it's it's stories. So that was an interesting Kantian move you just made there. So you mm. you when you I, I, I made an I made a um, a claim about uh, the the is and you made a claim about the appearance, right? Right. So and we that have was a ph- a phenomenon noumenon distinction, right? 
Yeah, I suppose. Um, although it's odd that I find myself on the Numenal side of that stick. Um, <laughs> you I'm mean usually, between you between you you and me, or in general? No, it just in general. I'm more on. I'm usually on the phenomenal side of a stick, right. Rather than the Numenal side, but um, but it's you know variety is the spice of life, or so it appears. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, you, that was a nice move. Well, so do you disagree though? I mean. I don't, and it's um, what's and the reason it's a nice move is because it's of course what it's a more modest claim, and those are usually safer and better. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, who knows what really is, but what in terms of what we appear, how we appear to function, and how we appear to process uh, information, um, it's stories. Yeah, I, I would say you know models, but um, but models are yeah. mainly stories, right? I mean, there's a certain. There's a certain um, storytelling quality, you know, even, you know, when I was in mathematics, there's a certain storytelling quality to doing proofs and feeling things are correct. I'm one of those who thinks that one plus one equals two is only a contingent truth. So I'm I'm one of the Mm. one one of the liberals whose relativistic notions are destroying what's good in America, I think. Well, thank you for that. Yeah, you're welcome. Uh, Point one. Point two. I think the uh, the. The ease with which we can anthropomorphize model elements, even in something like mathematics, right? Uh, yeah, so it just sort of underscores the point. I mean, you know, if if you're looking at coffee cups, first of all, that's a model. You get one coffee cup and another coffee cup, and that makes two coffee cups. And there's a certain notion you have of two, and it just feels right. It just seems right. There's a certain remorseless kind of logic that operates within our models, but that's a but that, that logic is part of those models. But, you know, you get one rabbit and another rabbit together. And if the right kind of rabbits, then one plus one equals three. Mm. So and just then to, you're yeah. off to all kinds of fun. Yeah, exactly. Well, the rabbits are. Yeah, we can, we can um, live vicariously through them. Yeah, Especially I, if you like carrots. Hmm. Then hmm. seeing the rabbit eat a carrot would be quite pleasant. I, I don't even know where to get started with this conversation, Joe. I feel like maybe if we just pretend we're just talking, it'll be it'll be easier. But so much has happened, and and p- people might might want to know, like you know, what's what's kept us from recording, you know, and, and like I've been recording the daylight side of, out of things for my property class. That's you true. Know, I've been producing tons of materials for them. I mean, tons. It it's actually less, I think, on a per on a minute basis than than what you and I had habitually done, but it like took a lot more time because it's, you know, just me talking and with, you know, some goofy sound effects and music, some stuff like that, just to try to maintain interest for, you know, for a property lecture, you know? So, yeah. I mean, if you go back to mid-March and up to now, which is late November, yeah, I mean, I've certainly recorded a a lot of me and as my students would, would tell you with, you know, grief stricken eyes, no doubt. (laughs) And, uh, and, you know, I, I, I feel their pain, uh, quite literally. Uh, so yeah, it's not, it's not because things haven't been recorded. I mean, we could, I'm happy to share some thoughts about what the way in which the last, uh, year and the last four years have utterly broken my mind. <laughs> I'm, I'm perfectly happy to talk about that. Yeah. Um, it's a fit. It's a totally legit topic for me i mean it's something i have to because i live in this head i've got to try to figure that out right um but yeah speaking speaking of the last thing we just talked about 
exactly. Let's let's tell that story. You know the whole <laughs> the whole conceit of the show is that it has been the a secret you know story of Joe, right? Yeah, and that's, you recall that's this. Not- favorite element of the of what we do but um yeah <laughs> um i mean when we last left this thing like i remember so first of all i haven't gone back and listened to exponential where we left off and i don't generally go back and listen um like our post-election episode i haven't listened to that and but um maybe i did listen to that once during this whole thing went back just out of morbid curiosity like how do we sound i, mm. I, I don't remember though it, it, you mean back in 2016 yeah 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 but yeah. I, I don't remember if I did or not, but I remember, um, I don't know. I remember thinking about it. Maybe that's all that counts. Uh, but I remember like talking about this looming crisis and I remember you, you and I were sitting in my kitchen before recording mm. and then we got to the recording and I was, I remember pulling punches because I thought like what, what I think you and I were both thinking would happen would be kind of irresponsible just to put out into a podcast, mm. um, in terms of like, we're not going to finish the semester. Everything's going to shut down. Um, yeah. This is the biggest crisis in my lifetime. And I don't remember if I said all that in the show, but I remember our talking about that in the yeah. in the kitchen. Right. And it just like watching this, it's like watching a slow motion, like a tidal wave or something coming in, like very, very slowly. You see it coming. Yeah. You you hope that people who can do something are, are doing something. And now we know a little bit about, about that. Right. Um, what people were not doing. But... Um, but then it's like, we just left our listeners in the lurch after that. And I, you know, I went to the Grand Canyon backpacking. That was our kind of last, you know, sneaked it in right under the wire, came back and then everything was shut down. We were like wiping down our groceries for, for a month. Well, this is when we still thought that it was mainly transmissible, uh, via fomites, these, you know, surface contact and stuff and not going anywhere. And, um, and, and, and you and I have not been indoors together like sharing a meal or otherwise and since since then since that episode right i think that's true uh we have i'm happy to say been uh, in the same general outside environment um a few times which has been delightful yeah um but um but yeah, and that's so that's a that's a, that's one time frame of course the other time frame is going back to 2016 and, yeah. um, and I, so I would, I, I think for me, um, a difficulty of the last few years has been, uh, feeling that some conversations are, hmm, what's the best way to describe this? I think that the, the way I experienced the last few years is that, um, my, my, uh, I, it felt, it felt and still feels precarious. There was a precarity in, uh, in my mind and it makes it hard to, uh, have certain conversations because they feel inauthentic. Um, right. While, while you're in the middle of them. It's like, there's a part of my mind that, that, uh, and it's varies in size on certain days, but, uh, there's a part of my mind that's like, Hmm, your mouth is open. Why aren't you just screaming? <laughs> like, why aren't you just screaming into a pillow or into the corner of the room? Or, I mean, you're awake, you're making mouth sounds. You should be hollering about something. 
Um, and that is, that was weird because yeah. until a few years ago, I did not regularly feel that way at all. Right. So like if you're going to talk, if hmm? we're going to have these, it, like if you're going to talk and we're going to have these conversations, it, it should matter. They should be meaningful. And yet if you said what you really meant, it would be, um, boy, uh, 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 a, a, just a stream of, I don't want to say invective, um, but, but it wouldn't necessarily be productive uh, because, you know, right. it, it's not like there is a it's not like there is a highly cognitive, frank exchange of ideas that's been animating the crisis in American society for the past four years. It's been, you know, uh, a, a sharing of kind of a, not a sharing, but a, but but a there, there's been a gulf between certain kind of existential um, uh, uh, um, forms of angst. Right. On, on one side, like and I think even. Boy, we can talk about the, the election if you want to and my cortisol levels, despite despite, you know, several years now of practice on on, I think, um, uh, equanimity. Um, right. Boy, that boy, they just shot through the roof. And uh, so, so, you know, the, the threat of the destruction of American democracy, which I you know, we can say I really do think that if he had been reelected, um, there may have been a United States, but it wouldn't have been the same United States. I, I think there was a very real threat of of absolute horror in terms of a republic but um uh, but on the other side there you know and i think mo- <laughs> there, there's similar kind of existential angst i think most of it is nonsense almost all of it is nonsense but it doesn't make it, it doesn't make it, it feel any less real on that side so there's been a lot of kind of like just shouting from positions of existential dread um between two camps one of right. whom i think has been ha- have had their brains broken by fox news and now oan and and Breitbart and, you know, this kind of utter nonsense, uh, it, just in terms of the actual information. Now, whether there are causes uh, that, that are not articulated by those news sources for a certain resentment, we can, you know, that's a, that's a different issue. But, sure. but I think that the, the main kind of dialogue has been one of emotion and anger and resentment rather than, you know, people having frank differences of opinion about the consequences of certain interpretations of the Commerce Clause, for example. Yeah. And I think going back to your very first observation about, you know, you want the conversation to be meaningful, and all of our prior ones have been. And so when the when my feeling started to be that to have certain kinds of conversations wouldn't feel meaningful, like when it was over, I would feel like, yeah, that really wasn't, that really wasn't germane. That really wasn't, a, that wasn't a, uh, that doesn't measure up to the situation we're in. Right. And I don't know how to do that. I didn't know how to do, like I said, I mean, conversationally, just like, why aren't you just, <laughs> why aren't you just yelling? Um, <laughs> because, and, and the reason I'm like, there's an answer to that question, which is it doesn't do any good. I mean, it, it, it can feel, it does release a certain emotional energy and that can feel both satisfying and, 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 um, and cathartic, uh, but it doesn't advance the, the thing the way a dialogue and a conversation can advance things. And so I think I feel a cloud lifting. I feel like we're, um, in, a, we're in a little less danger. Uh, uh, and as you say, you know, you can, a thing can be called the same thing and not be the same thing. Like if you think about a car after a car accident, um, right. you know, is that my car? Yeah. Um, but boy, it didn't look like that until a few minutes ago. Um, right. and it's dented pretty bad. 
And to get the dents out, can you do that? Of course you can. It takes some work. Uh, and it's not actually quite the same, right? You, you can get it to be a, a sort of similar to what it used to be, but it's going to have a creak and it's going to make a noise and it's not quite uh, as uh, good for having been damaged in the way that the accident damaged it. Uh, so these are all like, all of this has been making stuff difficult. Um, and I, and I, and, and having a conversation with you about really interesting stuff, which is something I think is both deeply satisfying to me and something people enjoyed listening to with all our great guests and all the great papers we read. And, and you know, I would like nothing better than to live back in the world where that I could do that sort of without feeling inauthentic. Right. Um, and I think that time is returning. Uh, but it's slow and, um, uh, you know, I, I did, I read and people, whatever, this is going to alarm someone or what have you, but, um, you know, so I read this interesting, um, and I'm not going to get it quite right, but, um, it, it was this, uh, uh, an observation, uh, out of, uh, people writing about, uh, certain historical events. Uh, and uh, with respect to uh, fascist governments, and the and the 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 quip was something like you know um, fascism isn't a thing about which you win arguments; it's uh, actions that you oppose. Mm. Right? It's not conversational; it's behavioral. Right. Uh, of course, conversation is a behavior, so you know, I get it, but. I think the central point is an interesting point, right? There's, there's, there are times when talking isn't really the most important thing. Right. Fascism is something you fight, not uh, argue against. But, um, but, but, that's, but saying fascism is something you fight is different from saying that you should punch Nazis, right? I, so the Quite punching so. can be part of the problem, but fighting doesn't, doesn't necessarily mean punching. Quite so. Uh, uh, the the countries know no more brave and uh, effective fighter than Martin Luther King Jr. I think. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, although there's there's a lot to talk about there with you know other forms of civil rights protest, you know Malcolm X and um, right. you know there's a we'll talk about a rich history that has that you know, can be and has been re-examined. There's, I don't know, so much to talk about there. Yeah. But the, because the, the, there are people, there are people in our society, not only African-Americans who have been under the thumb of fascism for a long time. Right. <laughs> and, and so yeah. I, I think a lot of us, uh, who are, you know, you know, I was middle-class suburban white kid, um, kind of woke up to this kind of horror show. It's not that, you know, I don't want to say that I was totally naive about this, but but there was uh, there was a different feeling after the election in 2016, where you could not just intellectually understand oppression, but that you could start to feel it. Not that I felt oppressed as a personal matter, but there was a there was there was a um, I don't know a closer, more direct experience of illiberalism that was that felt like a wave that was crashing. And it made me at least re-examine like what 
what am I doing with my life? And, <laughs> at, at, you know, because as a law professor, you know, we talked about this before, and but, you know, it's been months, so I got to just say all this again, I guess. But, okay. uh, you know, I, as you know, I, I always had students over to my house to discuss Supreme Court cases. I, you know, worked a lot with, uh, with students of all political persuasions. And, you know, I really believed in the power of conversation to shape uh, to help shape norms, to help shape collective projects, and and boy, this was a um, it was a gut punch, you know, especially seeing former students in MAGA hats, and um, I it that it was really really rough, and and for protect for exactly the reason that you that you mentioned, right, that 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 kind an embrace of that style of politics is one that you know conversation is no longer really possible at a deep level, right? When you have enough people who are embracing what you've always called this kind of anti-chump view of politics, right? I am, you know, the one thing I will not accept is is uh, is not getting something, not getting goodies when people who don't deserve it are getting goodies. And so the main, the, the most important thing here is to, is to get someone in who is going to smash the undeserving, right? And once right. you've elected President Smash and you support President Smash, then, you know, what, <laughs> what are we going to talk about? You know what, but it's so strange though, as we have seen this, uh, this uh, the events unfold in this recent election. How my kind of view of law and it's the way that law provides a kind of what at my law school orientation, a few profs called normative ordering, right? The the way that it that it constrains and yet gives a kind of framework for talking. But I have really mixed feelings about it because on the one hand, it has clearly played that role. In the past few, in the past week, in terms of the election, right? It has uh, sure. the, the presence of statutes and statutory responsibilities has 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 been kind of the the framework for criticism, the framework for action. Um, and yet, you know, I think the the realists and the crits have have never been more right at the same time. So both of the, I have both of those. It's it's kind of like what is it? Antinomies in my head at the same time. Mm. Um. So I, I I don't know about you, but so p- part of my hesitation. I mean, one is just like you, like doing these shows where we talk about new papers each week seemed inadequate to the moment and increasingly inadequate to the moment over time as the the bottom started to fall out of of the republic, right? And and as I was like reexamining like what what is my, you know, what what can I do here and and I saw people who were like clearly I think heroic in the moment, like all, all the lawyers on the front lines uh the, you know the Stacey Abrams, the politicians who were pushing back. Yeah. Uh, our our friend, you know, Dahlia Lithwick, who did an amazing run of shows on the Amicus podcast mm-hmm. um, about you know interviewing lawyers who were really doing terrific work, and and then of course there were a whole bunch of new uh, like law prof conversation shows that have sprung up that did kind of what we did. And so like, well, why do we need to, you know a bunch of people are now doing this right, right from all over, and and so. Yeah, our, our little conversations seemed, at least as we'd been doing them, inadequate to the moment, since, especially given that they were kind of geared to a kind of conversation that I was increasingly convinced had had not worked. Or, you know, part of that is this this phenomenon, too, that, you know, of, of getting teaching evaluations and you may get like 80 evaluations saying, hey, that you're, you know, this was the greatest. And then you get two or three which say this is terrible and he's awful for all these kinds of reasons. And those are the only ones you remember. So, you know, the fact that you you remember the the students that you didn't reach, the students who have embraced fascism or people in your life, like, like, you know, maybe that's not an indictment of our entire 
efforts. But it certainly made me reexamine like what is, you know, what role do I play in preserving shared values, right? And and keeping the the torch of alive of of thoughtful engagement and a desire to make things better today than they were yesterday. And, and that, that has substantive normative content. It's not just a procedural thing. It's not just about civility. It is about right. shaping a, a, a point of view that that it doesn't matter that you, you know, this the student loan thing, right? I remember talking to a, to a guy four years ago about like loan forgiveness and, and he's saying, well, I worked really hard to pay off my loan, so I don't support that. And I'm like, that is why America's dying, right? This attitude, like, you know, keeping alive an ethic that, that no matter how much, you know, your suffering makes it all the more uh, important that you find a way that people after you don't suffer in the same way. Like that's the, the substantive ethic that has to be kept alive. And I wasn't, I'm not sure that the way we've been doing things before on this show or otherwise is necessarily, um, is the best way to contribute to that. But boy, I miss these conversations. So here we are. And, and, uh, you know, in the spectrum of, of that, like thinking about how to bring about those results and you can, there are things that are, um, would be detrimental. There are things that would help a lot, things that would help a little, things that are basically neutral. I don't think we were ever in the affirmatively harmful territory. We no, were no. like in the neutral to to helpful. Um, but um, again, given the enormity of the problems uh, and in a way the whiplash uh, from what I think was a, a really exceptionally good uh, national administration to it flipping into this sort of um, bizarro, uh, wildly bad, malevolent um, national administration. Um, it was just, <laughs> it's sort of, you know, I'm, my mind was reeling on a pretty regular basis. And, and so that affected, um, it would be, I think it would be weird for me not to have questioned the things you were just talking about. That, mm-hmm. Like, how do you do this? What do you do? How do you do it? What are the benefits of it? Are there things that you could be doing that would be more beneficial? Um, so I've been, you know, I think I've been more interested in listening to people than talking than right. was true a few years ago. I think that's good. Um, and as I say, we're, I think we're, we're sort of shifting into a slightly less, uh, maybe a lot less extreme situation. So that's, you know, that's a good thing. We've got to, you know, we got to, it's in a way it's too soon to know. You've got to take stock and look around and see what the, what the, what the realities are. Um, right. But, uh, and boy, a lot of people have been whipped up to a pretty bad state. And of course, they're not going anywhere. Um, and the people who've been whipping them up are going to keep on doing that, I suppose. Yeah, we, we talked about this the other day, right? That I think the key is you got to find ways to make all lives better, right? Including theirs, right? And, and, and to make it clear that that's what you're doing. You know, you're getting goodies um, because that's what we're about here. We're, and, and by goodies, I don't mean material things. This is not a... You know that we have to make consumerism work better for everybody. I, you know, I think a large part of our challenge is to develop, uh, to borrow from Jedediah Purdy, like we, we need to develop a commonwealth, right? A uh, a sense of the common good, and and to help people to feel that, to feel that they are prospering from this yeah. common good. That there's a uh, 
this idea that we can proceed without a shared project. You know, this this goes back to our discussion of uh, of um, Vermeule's illiberal illiberalism, right? The this this attack on 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 liberalism that you know, and his is from this, I think, imperial Catholic perspective, which which I don't share. But we had talked about my at least my sympathy with the critiques of modern understandings of liberalism that there was this ability to prosper without shared projects, and I'm, I've been more and more skeptical of that, and you know that it's that that uh, I don't I don't know how much to talk about this, but go ahead. yeah, you're about to say something. No, no, I'm. I, I was, but then you you said I don't know how much I want to talk about this, and then I got more interested oh, in hearing. You. Well, no, 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 no. I mean, I, I, I just think you know I, what's been very important for me in the past four years has been kind of personal spiritual development, and by spiritual, I just mean understanding myself better, hmm. and and kind of getting you know, uh, getting a practice going that coincides with my what what otherwise I had you know, come to realize, um, about myself and, and, and there's a, you know, there's a sense that when you undertake a certain kind of practice that grapples with things as they really are, you know, whatever that is for you, whether it's, you know, whether it's meditation or church or, or, or whatever, whatever it might be, I think at its best, a a certain kind of practice with grappling with things as they are is what really can turn your mind outward to helping others and like really wanting to help others, not in this kind of overly attached way or a way where you feel like there are rules, but just because like, why wouldn't I do that? Like what's special, you know, this like leaning into this question of what is special about me and realizing that there's nothing special about me, uh, um, that, that can sound like it would lead to nihilism, but the more you lean into it and you have direct experience of your kind of non-specialness, the more you, are just feel this amazing compassion for other people, this amazing like actual rejoice and and when they you know and, and kind of non jealousy for when they succeed. I, I, so you know, for me, like I've been exploring that on a personal level and thinking about what it means for society for someone like me who believes in, for example, group agency that that groups have a kind of psychological makeup that is that is more than the sum of the parts of the individuals, right? That there is a similar kind of dynamic going on. Uh, where where maybe a gr- it's not enough for a group to have certain kind of a shared epistemology, you know, a shared set of uh, a shared set of kind of things that they know, but maybe groups really do need a kind of shared they they need a practice, a practice that can lead to this kind of realization at, at a group level. So academically and, scho- and on a scholarly, I've been thinking in, in kind of in this in this direction, and and have been increasingly skeptical that that this whiplash that we, that you described earlier, we can just kind of reverse it, right? That, oh, that, you know, we, we, things were going well and all of a sudden things are going badly, but they can go well again. Um, I started thinking more of 2016, like a, like a cancer diagnosis. Like there's been something there all along, right? Sure. And it's not enough just to like pretend the cancer isn't there or like wish it away. Like, you know, there's, um, you know, what is it? The Emperor of All Maladies, a great book about about the history of cancer. But like, you know, one of the takeaways from that book, as someone who didn't really know a lot about the biology of cancer, is like one of the things that makes it so difficult to treat is that it is you in a very real sense. The cancer is is your own body. Um, mm, right. You know, uh, and, and, and that is 
the problem here, right? That this uh, uh, th- this part of our group that you think, oh, it's like it, you know, things were going well, and then suddenly things changed, and now we just need to excise this or 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 exercise. Both words would work here, right? Uh, this uh, uh, this 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 malintent. Uh, that that seems like inadequate, right? That it really is a part of us, including me, right? This 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 identity, these conflicting identities that we have, these stories. To go back to the first part of the conversation, like you know, everybody has these different stories, and these stories seem incompatible. And uh, so, so what does it mean to foster a shared story? Well, you can't force people to adopt a shared story. There has to be some kind of collective practice, which ultimately leads to some realizations uh, at the level of individuals. But uh, that's all quite vague. I don't know. Um, I find it all quite difficult. It is difficult. And you get, uh, but I think, um, so to follow up on what you were just saying, I think you get, um, uh, I I would say that we get stories that overlap, whether we try or not. Um, We can uh, get them to overlap and interact and sort of weave together in a more interesting and nourishing way if we try, um, although not everyone is going to participate in that or feel drawn to that. Um, and um, the, the sort of uh, the common project idea, I think, is, is just critical. Um, I'm not sure about that group perception or group psychology you're referring to, but, but, um, so I would want to reflect more on that, but the, well, yeah, I was just, so one of the, this project I've been working on, which I hope to get, I don't know about you, but like, I found all of my like writing projects completely derailed by the semester, you know, all yeah. the stuff I have to do. And, and also just the, the amount of time that I spend just staring into space has increased a lot. Um, I think maybe more productively because I'm not ruminating as much as I used to earlier in life, but still it's mm. like, there's a lot of time just spent with, you know, oneself right now. And, right. uh, but, but anyway, there's, uh, there's, there's this really great, um, uh, um, uh, work out there on the ways that human beings develop kind of, uh, culture, uh, morality and, um, uh, and, and, you know the the idea is that we form the these kinds of we form these kind of uh, uh, groups, right? That that um, that share kind of common knowledge. That uh, and there's, there's a kind of facility in our brain which is able to not only understand what the other person is thinking because other animals can actually do that. They have you know models of mind, and and mm-hmm. so we're not the only ones who, who who have that theories of mind, but are able to know you know it, it's the i know that you know that i know kind of thing like so we, we both know that we're cooperating and we act with that knowledge so we're able to form these kinds of dual level collaborative structures where we understand both kind of the the joint goal that we all have together but we understand our role in that thing we both understand that we both understand those are our roles and um and then you know eventually you know like three years of age or so that def- that that generalizes into a, a, an even more rather than just kind of joint collaboration between two people, which is something that children develop very early on, uh, around the age of three, and then extending to about six years. This 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 new capacity for more kind of collective intentionality or collective cooperation emerges, where 
I can, you know, I know that you know that our whole group knows that this is, and so we start to have these roles within the whole group, right? And so one of the most intriguing things that I read here is the way that 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 developing these kinds of group level cooperations, eventually what you start to hear is the group's own voice in your head, this inner voice that you have about morality, right? It actually arises from these repeated instances of group interaction and your increasing kind of awareness of the 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 presence of an authoritative group, right? And that your own, like people raised without, or, you know, who grow up without any kind of group, you know, if you're raised on a desert island, like how would things be? You might not have an inner voice at all, right? This the Feelings of guilt, for example, arise because of the norms that you have acquired within the group that have, you know, the, the group's voices, which, which has moved into your own head. So, you know... So is it, let me just uh, so pause there. And so the, the um, you know, for, for a group to have a voice, it's, I mean, does, is the group, it's sort of a, is there a new entity that is the embodiment of the group? Sort of like kicking up a level or thinking of uh, the sort of uh, Greco-Roman pantheon, uh, these sort of God, figures that sort of uh, and are, have voices because they're <laughs> they're a lot right. like us right they're individuals um but they speak from this higher perspective uh and have a different level of agency and have a different level of um emotional uh resonance and power and, yeah i think uh, our minds construct such things right i'm uh, like in the same way you know you heard it I, I forget the philosopher you know about the the cart how you can disassemble a cart into its constituent parts like the cart only exists as a mental construct of all the parts that make it up right mm-hmm. um and in the same way like you know i think we intuitively grasp the idea of a social structure you know the idea of a united states the idea of a family the idea of all the different social units of which we're a part and we in our heads you know unless we really think about it we just think of those things as having some kind of identity as a as a thing right and and the rules of that thing, we we feel. We don't just think, but we we feel those rules. And there's something about human beings which positively drives us to seek out these interactions. And and actually, that's what you know. Human children develop these facilities for group level argumentation, discussion about rules, like from these from these early interactions, first with their parents and then with peers. That happens, you know, the, with peers happens after three years of age. So I'm really drawing the work of uh, Thomasello here. And, and it's, which is uh, just it, absolutely fascinating. So it has a sociobiological sort of feel. Um, yeah. That, uh, like this is part of our, part of this species, the one we're talking about, <laughs> which we're also members, um, is uh, like, this is just how this, at members of this species develop. And, yeah. I, and you can appreciate why in the world uh, that we live in, um, why if, if one were inclined to, sort of explore this facet of it um you could understand why in a in a uh, in a long-term uh contest over scarce resources you can imagine why a species that had this kind of sociality would do better um as against one that didn't right this kind of sociality because the the nature of the social projects that could be that you can accomplish and the safety of any individual in the group again as against a collection of 
individuals who had no sense for this sociology to make, paint two extremes, right? Um, yeah, it makes, a, it makes a lot of sense. That, well, that Tomasello postulates that this arises from a cooperative breeding context, right? Where you've got like lots of adults taking care of lots of children and that that works better the more able young children are to kind of uh, um, to form instances of cooperation with other adults, right? And, and, you know, eventually this develops into this beyond other primates capacity to develop shared worlds. You know, what I've always, in law, what I've always thought of is like mental models that we sync up and Tomasello and others describe as collective intentionality, right? This, this ability to, you know, share a common base of, of, of facts that we know, but also to kind of structure our, our, our cooperation in terms of roles that we each know that we all have, right? That we all know that we have, you know, it's not just that we have a shared base of knowledge, but we all know that we have that shared base and we all know that it is a shared base of knowledge. And so it's, Yeah. It's a difference it, between um, it's a difference between like a monkey observing another monkey, like uh, you know, um, I don't know, killing some prey with a bone or something like that, because you know monkeys use tools, and, uh, and and then saying, hey, that's a good way to do it, and they, so they've learned right, and they are able to do that, or they see a mother do something, and they're able to you know follow what the mother does, and they've learned. Um, but when a child sits in school at the age of eight or nine, and they hear a teacher talk about you know, well, this is a you know, this tree has these you know nuts that you can actually eat right the child understands not only is is that like does the teacher believe that thing but the child appreciates that that teacher is kind of speaking on behalf of the group and sharing the group's knowledge right so that, the whole idea of pedagogy um as a as cultural transmission requires at least according to Tomasello, like this this kind of collective level of intentionality and what i find interesting to think about in in in, uh, in our current circumstance is that if you think about this capacity uh, we're, that, we're, that we're positing, that you're positing, uh, this other person is positing as a sort of uh, a healthy human capacity, right? Um, and boy, does it sound like it has the ring of truth. I mean, nothing you've said sounds unusual or, or bizarre to me. So, so starting from there and asking yourself, okay, if you've, if you've got this capacity um, much like we, um, you know, the, the, in a noise, in a series of noises, the mind tries to find some pattern or some music, right? right. Even if it isn't there. Yeah. Um, uh, we've, we've got this capacity. And so if the, if, if we're not filling in with some intentionality, if we're not filling that capacity with some healthy content, well, it's not like, it's not going to keep looking for content. Right. And it's going to make what it can out of what it has available. So if what it has available is a bunch of sick, toxic garbage, <laughs> that's what it's going to make stuff out of. Right. It seems to me. Right. Yeah. At least that's what I think we would expect. So if your ear is listening to a random, like some white noise or brown noise or pink noise or whatever those random noise generator things are, like you're listening to that and you're like, <laughs> you're trying to pick something out of it. Of course you can't. Um, but you try. Yeah. Uh, so what's the, like, what are the overarching sort of social uh, narratives and, uh, and common projects or not? Um, I think this must be where a lot of conspiracy theorizing comes from, is that we have this capacity um, and it's just being filled with garbage. Mm-hmm. For yeah. some people, some of the time about some topics. 
Yeah, the, the common epistemology. Yeah, all the time about all topics, but it's because what, what was it? Cass Sunstein who wrote like Republic.com back in the '90s about how people, you know, and he wasn't the only one, but like that, you know, people make each other more extreme in groups, and that this was going to accelerate with online groups. And, you know, this kind of to the extent you you become part of a collective and that becomes part of your identity and you have a shared epistemology with the rest of this collective. Right. Um, and then, you know, um, there's a desire to be more of whatever that group is. Uh, I think that's kind of what you're describing. Right. It's, it's you know, finding a group of like minded um, people who believe that, you know, fluoride in the water is making us all crazy. And um, I want to be. You know, the goal of, of succeeding in that group is to become more of whatever you think the essential thing about that group is. And, and simply because having the the having a knack for social like mindedness mm-hmm. uh, is an awfully good quality to have. Well, that's what. So yeah, I can preview for me my next two projects and see if you think this contributes to, you know, something good. I hope it's contributing to something good. So one of them is this review of just this Tomasello model of things, which draws on all kinds of excellent like. Um, um, comparative psychology research, and it's it's just fascinating. But you know, this this I think one of the stories you know that we have about law in our heads is that you know law is kind of an accommodation. Like ideally, we wouldn't have to cooperate at all, right? I wouldn't have to deal with you as a neighbor. This kind of like you know this idea of cozy and tragedy that that you know one thing law does is it resolves these problems that arise because we're forced to live next to each other. Like you know this, um, uh, you know going back to um, um, uh, geez, I'm missing. I, my brain is not working. I need more coffee, Joe. Um, uh, jurisprudence and gender, Robin West's idea of the separation thesis, right? And the yeah, I was just thinking connection about thesis that, as you were yeah. describing stuff, right? Because it's so that, that, um, the, uh, so if you, you know, you're thinking of sort of like the Hobbes, Locke, right, et cetera, et cetera, through coast, that's all of a piece. And right. it's this atomized individual, where the thing, the, 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 the st- perfection is utter unrelatedness. Right. And, and um, that law is what we, because we can't have that. And because we have scarcity, like law comes in as kind of a, almost a second best. Right. Uh, um, to, and she has a wonderful way of dealing with that and connecting it with gender and different uh, feminist yeah. theories, which I think is just marvelous. But, uh, but part of this project is to say, if you take these um, psychologists seriously, you realize that that's just a totally, and, and, you know, they're not the first to say it. I'm not the first to say it, even with respect to law. Like, it's just a wrong model of human beings. And it's not just wrong in that, like, it, we're not like, you know, um, law is not just a second best in terms of, uh, you, you know, we, we prefer isolation because we don't. It's, it's not only that we don't prefer isolation, but we're not even humans without this positive drive to build shared worlds with other people. Like that's what makes us human beings. That's that's Tomasello's hypothesis, his conclusion from all this research, right? Yeah. That that you you wouldn't even have an internal voice telling you, uh, um, it, making you feel guilt, making you feel whatever it is that you feel and you want you think you want to feel in isolation. That voice wouldn't even exist without experiences of the we. Like the I doesn't exist without the we. And and to see, yeah. So it's um what's so the. A way to describe what's going on in the sort of the Hobbes, Locke, Coase, um, boy, am I compressing, but, you know, the, a way to talk about that, I'm reminded of the, um, uh, what, what is it, um, in, the, in the next to last uh, Star Wars movie, um, where Luke says to another character who I can't remember who, but it's like, you know, every word in that sentence was wrong. <laughs> it's like that starting point of, right. like, 
perfection is these atomized, separated, uh, utterly like not antisocial because it's earlier than that. It's non-social. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's a sociality. There's just no, there's the monad and that's it. Right. Right. Um, it just couldn't be more wrong. Right. Right. If you if you want to talk about humans, I mean, maybe it works for something else, but it's, it, it, no. So I'm thinking of the, like, yeah, go ahead. I think Coase was actually, um, I mean, you, since you mentioned him, I, I think he, unlike a lot of people <laughs> who have it, who don't quite get that uh, he has an awareness of, of the fact that he's doing a thought experiment in yes. much the same way that Einstein says, imagine being on a train that's traveling at the speed of light. What would I see? Right. Coase imagining a world with no transaction costs and everyone's got perfect information. Like he knows that's not true. Right. Um, you know, I, I, I think Coase's his paper is, I think his paper problem of social costs is wonderful and, and it's precisely because it's so misused that, you know, it kind of drives me, drives right. me crazy because I think the, the key insight in that, in that piece is, is not this like, you know, uh, we should try to approximate this ideal world, this, what people may call the cozy world. It's, it's rather the, the main contribution is to observe that there's really no such thing as negative externalities without a joint social project to determine baselines. Right. Yes. It, it, it is like the non, the incoherence of just saying, we should uh, um, uh, we should internalize externalities as if that is self-defining. I think that is the chief contribution of that paper. And it's when you look at that, there's so much going on there. Um, right. You know, establishing transaction cost economics and uh, and even like throwing in the the um, a little bit of the theory of the firm in that paper. It's just it's marvelous. It's absolutely right. marvelous. But the you know the mutuality of the causation. Uh, yeah. Which is another way to think say what I think you just said. Um, is I always call it the reciprocal that, harm problem. The problem yeah, of reciprocal, yeah. That, that proceeds from recognizing the embedded, the social embeddedness of all of the behavior right. that's under discussion. Yeah, he's just identifying situation. You know, the role of law is to kind of is to harmonize kind of conflicting conflicting projects, right? It, which is when you think about it, it's like an extension of what we've been talking about, right? That human beings are positively driven to cooperate. At times, you know, you get people who don't conceive of themselves in the same group. Maybe they're, they conceive of themselves in the same group in a larger context, but in the context of me as a farmer on this land and you as a as a train company on this land throwing out sparks, like we, you know, our, our projects are colliding. And the role of law is to extend this project that we have that we're positively driven to of building a shared world, having a shared understanding of, of what's best. And, and until you do that, the, the idea of a... Of, of an externality doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense without respect to a project. And, uh, and uh, a project, uh, actually, it doesn't make any sense without there being more than one project. There's got to be more than one person and there's got to be more than one project. Uh, th- that's uh, right, because externality in mind, it has in mind that someone has made a decision which is contrary to. So you actually need conflicting projects, right? It's not like, so a tornado doesn't, doesn't impose an externality, right? Because the tornado is not a decision maker who's gaining any benefit, right? Just a yeah. harm. Yeah. yeah. Um, and that I think it's also true, as you say, that the um, the comprehensibility of the of the situation uh, proceeds from the idea that there's more than the conflicting projects. Right. There are uh, uh, there are uh, sort of supervening things. There are subordinate things. 
But again, the, the notion that there's, if, if there were just the conflicting projects, I think there would be an incomprehensibility or an Yeah, how would we decide? Right. Or how do we even know how to talk about the situation, right? Right. It's the fact that it's embedded in something bigger that makes it intelligible to both of the people involved in it. That's why I come back to like Jed Purdy's work and others, like, the, you know, that the, the main focus has to be, the you know, how we construct more substantive, more, um, more harmonious um, uh, uh, joint, you know, overall social projects. Like, you know, without a sense of a shared social project, we, we atomize, but we can never really atomize because that's not who we are. Right. So it creates yes. all this tension. Well, so, so this project of like, you know, looking at this is, is, you know, just making this, I think, observation that everybody kind of knows, but hasn't been said or something, you know, that, that you, you can't be human without these groups. Like that forming these groups is essential to becoming human. And, and that's it in, in, in tension with a lot of the theoretical underpinnings of, say, property law, for example, right? Which, you know, especially like the old Blackstonian view of property as exit, which people like Eduardo Peñovar and others and Sonia Katyal right. have written property as entrance, right? This, and and yeah. so this adds fuel to that kind of property as entrance view that really what law needs to facilitate is the working out of our social projects together, Right. And sometimes that means, you know, putting layers of, of private governance, you know, between the individual and public governance. And sometimes it means facilitating public governance. I mean, it can be a really complicated thing. But, so, you know, this little piece I'm working on is just a is meant to is meant to, you know, suggest that there is good scientific reason to support the idea. Right. That uh, uh, that law should recognize our pro sociality. Right. Not our anti sociality. Like it's. Uh, um, so anyway, that that's one of them. Then I got this other idea extending from that, um, which, um, you know, so, so there are kind of Western philosophical notions of uh, that, that coincide with this. But I want to approach it more from a Buddhist perspective. Right. So the, the four noble truths in Buddhism uh, are kind of core to many different kinds of Buddhism. And and they proceed from, um, well, from this idea that things are constantly in flux. Things you know, nothing is permanent or I should say that everything is inconstant. And that uh, our our lives are persuade are pervaded by a kind of oftentimes the word used is suffering, um, mm. but I, I, sometimes that may be too strong. I I, I think it's as as a kind of um, uh, uh, abiding sense that maybe things should be a little bit different. That you know this is not how things should be. This sense of uh, sometimes it's translated as stress. The word is dukkha, but you know it's it's. The idea that like this isn't how things should be, or I need to do this different, or you know this 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 felt sense of the distance between what is and what really should be, like and, off, it's offness, like what, offness, yeah, things, things off, yeah, something off, yeah, and, and sometimes this manifests in profound suffering, and profound sure. suffering that that just can't be avoided, like the death of a loved one or something like that, or. Um, yeah. or, or, or it, you know, or as we were talking about earlier, like a cancer diagnosis or something which really is like really not how you want things to be. And no one would say that you're a bad person for not wanting things to be that way. Like, you know, that's um, and, and then there's this. The second truth is that this uh, um, the suffering ar- arises because precisely because, well, you are attached to a particular way that things should be right. You're like you're at war with the inconstancy of all phenomena. Right. And, and so uh, this this felt sense that things should be otherwise is arises from your attachments to these things. Right. And I'm not going to go into the third and fourth, but but the the general kind of um, soteriological function of uh, uh, of many forms of Buddhism is to 
establish a kind of path of practice by which you can directly realize the inconstancy of things uh, and feel them and not just think them. Because I think, you know, if I say, hey, nothing lasts, everything, you know, everything changes, most people would say, yeah, that's obvious, right? I mean, intellectually, I think people grasp that, you know, nothing is, you know, think, think everything changes. But well, um, certainly, that's certainly been part of Western thought since at least Heraclitus. Right. Yeah. One of the Can't step in the same crowd. river twice. Right. Yeah. It's right. Just, that, that, it's exactly the idea. Yeah. Um, but, uh, well, you know, you, you do have to deal with the fact that much of Western philosophy has also tried to accommodate the idea of an eternal soul, right? That these two, you know, this is back to the Descartes idea, right? That there is this constant or um, enduring uh, mind part, which is different than the inconstant like body parts, right? So um, whereas Buddhism, I think, never really, well, it has dealt with that, but any, in different ways. Um, yeah, so but, the, right. So the the Buddhist rejoinder to Heraclitus is comma and you're a river. Right. Um, right. Fair enough. Uh, and, I, I was taking a hard position right. on that. Uh, also, I, I think the difference between your observation about the difference between an idea and feeling it in your gut. Yes. In your lived experience, living that as your experience is a different, obviously different matter entirely. And, and living it is what living it and feeling it is what allows you to kind of unclench that fist on the thing that you don't want to change. Right. It, it, it's the, um, you know, it's, it's almost like seeing the homeostatic functions of the body, right? The, the fact that the body is constantly urging you to, you know, eat this, drink that, um, go there, love this person and not that person, you know, um, strike that person because they made you angry. Like all of these, uh, you know, all, all the inconstancy just within the body, which is driving you toward fulfilling these tastes, um, that once you see that happening, it's so much easier not to grasp at anything, to just let the body, you know, let these urges go, recognize them for what they are, and not feel like you have to get involved with them or react to them. I'm, I'm dramatically oversimplifying here, but I just wanted to make a, a point relevant to maybe our show. I don't know. Uh, and, and so that is, you know, I, I think for people who, I'm not saying this is the only way of, of, of overcoming this sense of offness. I mean, there are lots of different religious views and secular ideas about how to do this. I'm just pointing to one, which happens to kind of work for me. Yeah. And, and so you undertake this practice and you can really start, I think, to be happier with inconstancy and not grasp at things. And, and it allows you, I think, to become more compassionate in, a, in an easygoing, with a certain sense of ease. Now, um, so the idea is this, like, is that true at the level of these group agents, at the level of sociality, given that the human being, like, you know, a lot of what we, of what we do is to move this, uh, uh, move the shared experience inside through the process of, of being social, right? And that's maybe is part of what constructs us. Um, but the sense that, like, to get our, to, our together sense that society should be otherwise, like, isn't, is a fuel for social progress, to be sure, Right. But there's this but this this sense that like things are off may have a certain like may may impose a certain little level of social suffering very similar to what we experience as individuals. And so I'm thinking of ways of doing like law or policy uh, that have a certain kind of grasping to them um, that may be counterproductive. And, and so this is like in a way I see this as a defense of a kind of crit theory or uh, um, or at least a modified form of critical studies, maybe a defensive realism, that by uh, both leaning into the reality of the situation, right, that 
that there are no words on a page which are going to resolve exactly what should happen in this case. It is our attitudes towards those words that actually resolves the cases, right? Um, that that by doing that and committing to a certain kind of practice, similar to the eightfold path in Buddhism, it doesn't, you know, but similar to a lot of other traditions, right? Um, that that doing law together and doing policy together is a certain kind of involves a certain kind of virtue, a certain kind of commitment to ethics, and a kind of consistent like experience of the fact that our choices are open. Direct experience of that, and and so there's something about doing law which is different from thinking law, and it's in the it's in the doing in a certain way that in with a with a sense of practice um, that um, that we can actually overcome the kind of I think suffering imposed by a sense that this is the way that things have to be, and they're not that way. I'm being vague here, but like the project's pretty early, and so I don't want to I don't know that I can expand much more, but. But I, I do have this sense that, um, you know, a lot of our strife comes from people just believing that things, you know, must be this way, that there is a certain ideal. This is, you know, a certain natural law, if you like, that we are, that we've fallen short of. Um, and like I said, that just like in human beings, right, the sense that you have that, oh, I really should have done this or I, you know, I, I failed at this and, and like that could be an engine for self-improvement. But it can also be an engine for depression and needless, you know, uh, you have to love yourself as much as you should love others. And part of that is recognizing, oh, you know, I, I mess up a lot of the time. Lots of people do. It, it's okay, right? Um, but to be able to do that without forgiving yourself for future transgressions, like, no, I should try to do better, right? And that involves like looking at yourself honestly. It's a practice of like radical honesty, which, you know, meditation can be useful for, but, but also other aspects of the path. So, so too, I think a kind of radical honesty when it comes to law can be helpful for recognizing um, how to make a thriving social structure. Um, and, and that involves not just like, I don't know, writing, writing articles or, or stuff, observing that law is inconstant, that, um, that, uh, um, that law is not just words on a page, you know, not just indeterminism, right? But like, leaning into that in practice in a way that constantly reveals the choices that we have to make and 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 kind of when captured you say, when you say choices we have to make is that a way to um is that is that in the difference you made between thinking law and doing law is right when you're doing law you're making choices you're making choices um, when you're th- and is is explaining your choices or justifying your choices is that also part of doing law or is that back to thinking law? No, I mean that that's doing, right? It, but it, it's a kind of like oh, it's it's kind of an awareness of where the degrees of freedom are, an awareness of um, the fact that nothing else. There's nothing outside which is resolving this. There's nothing outside which is. Um, uh, which is kind of constraining us to a particular course of conduct, right? That we are, this is something we are doing together right now. Yeah. And, and, uh, and although we may be using these materials and arguing about what they should mean for us, we are constantly, you know, inventing these things. There's no identity that we are without reference to what we're doing right now. 
It is so interesting. Uh, this is sounds very, I like this project a lot. It sounds very interesting. One, I think a, a way that it connects to things I've been thinking a lot about is that I think one, um, I think one uh, consequence of approaching things in the way that you're describing uh, is that you would be, among other things, very suspicious of the notion of AIs reaching legal judgments. Mm -hmm. um, and this is, happens to be a thing people are talking about the last few years is sort of yeah. like, you know, AIs that, that make judgments and even write opinions. Um, and this, this has always struck me as, <laughs> as such a profound category misunderstanding about what reaching a legal judgment is. Yes. Um, that suggesting, I mean, the very fact that an AI is doing it is a is is all the information you need to know that it is not a legal judgment. Mm. Um, because it, like it, <laughs> laws of human activity, um, it's it's not the supreme human activity to be sure, but uh, but it is one. Um, so yeah, it, that's very fascinating. Yeah, there's a lot more to say. I'm being a little vague about it, but it, it, I can't help but think about it because uh, because of the conversation we started off with today and the, the this kind of disconnection that we felt from what we had been, you know, doing before in a way, right? That there's this, uh, in some ways, abiding sense that things should be otherwise, but like a, just, I would say like a reexamination of yeah. you know how should we talk together what's the purpose of it and, yes. um, and, and how much that, how much have i been attached to a certain identity as a legal thinker that is like not really real right or or that um that doesn't that doesn't keep that doesn't stay the same as all everything around it changes mm -hmm. i mean it's you know the it is not an indictment of the past to have a different present. Yeah. Um, as painful as that can be <laughs> to be in the, a different present. Um, or just to think like, what, what would make me, if, if I were a judge, what would make me a good judge? And, you know, you know, I think if I didn't think about it, you know, I have views about how things should go. As you know, Joe, I'm not, <laughs> not afraid to share them. Uh, and, and I have certain identities, which I think um, I kind of just, you know, without thought slip into and, and become important to me and get defensive about just like everybody else. And sure. if I were not a careful judge, it would be so easy, right? Just to let those identities, those felt identities drive my decision-making. And my sense is that as a judge, it's especially important to be aware that those identities are constructed, that they aren't really you. And, uh, and, and that there's a certain practice involved in, in judging and a commitment to that practice and a commitment to certain to, to try to achieve certain virtues and a constant reminder of the, the practical necessity of returning to those things to mm. me is so important, right? Because if you turn that off, if you turn off that practice, kind of like what I feel if I turn off meditation practice for too long, I just feel myself just slip into kind of a certain uh, um, um, habitual reactiveness, which makes everybody worse off <laughs> myself, most of all, but maybe those around me too. Right. And, but, but so too with the judge, if you, you would slip into this kind of reactive, uh, mindset that where your identities are kind of driving the, the show. And I think to be a really good judge, and I'm using judge here as a stand in for all kinds of, of 
public positions that one could have or, mm. or stations in life that one could have right. um, involves a constant like you know practice of observing those identities observing that you're clinging to them or that they are inconstant and 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 a commitment to kind of a a, a virtuous exercise whatever your station is of um you know i'm no imp- more important than anyone else um i have no particular claim on the truth that others don't have um i should be committed not to harming others um i need to be radically honest it means always you know telling the truth uh, I need to be conscious of the right time at which to speak in the right way with the with not too much harshness. Um, uh, I need to approach things with you know the right mindfulness and the right concentration and all these. So like a commitment to those uh, virtues, I think is important. And it, it's not just thinking about those virtues. It's it's a it really is a practice. And so it's really been kind of almost poetic in my mind to think of law as a practice, which I've you know I I was a practitioner for a little while, but um, but not in the um, uh, not for a long time in the traditional sense. Um, mm-hmm. But this idea of law as practice is really interesting to me, and, and it has possibilities in it um, for for thinking about law as practice that I don't think we've fully explored. Hmm. I don't know. Wow. I'm kind cool. of second guess. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. Yeah. I like it. Well, um, I've enjoyed but, hearing about it. I think I will enjoy hearing about it more. Yeah. I mean, where do we go from here? We've now ascertained a new president. We've now what? We've now ascertained a new president. Yes, it has been ascertained. Not uh, You're using we in an interesting way there. Um, well, I, I think she is a, she's our appointed representative to serve this function. Ah, it's a perfectly fair point. Um, so, yes. <laughs> As I said, I feel a cloud lifting. Um, yeah. You know, it, we, I don't know. I, I feel like maybe we should shout out people who've been doing like great work during all this, like, you know, Steve Vladek and others. We already shouted out a few other people earlier on who have kind of kept people informed and in a, in a, in a good way and, uh, and all these new podcasts out there. But like people already know who they are. It's, it's us, Joe, that people don't know anymore because we've been away for so long. We're now the, you know, we're like super <laughs> obscure. I guess. Um, yeah. Do you, do, do you know what got me the most notoriety of anything I've done in like the past year, probably? No. What, what's that? It's um, uh, when when Steve um, retweeted a tweet that I put out like on, I don't know, election night in the New York Times. Like he wrote a New York Times op-ed and then like retweeted me in there. It was like something like, you know, it um, reminding people that the election was over. There's no like people catching up or so-and-so was ahead uh, or whatever. Is- the, the votes have actually been cast. It's counting them takes some time, right? But counting, right? So it's just an as, physics. It's just an you know all that's happening after the polls close is an ascertainment of something that's already happened, right? That's yeah. that's it. And, and, the, and the, so Steve Steve printed that in the Times, and it was like you know that's you know whatever I've written <laughs> and whatever I've done, like that's you know I got email from I got email from like uh, um, uh, uh, important people in my past saying, hey, I saw this in the Times. I'm like, oh, okay, well, you know, if you had told me in advance that someone would print one of my um, tweets in the New York Times, I would just assume that I'd been fired. It's some <laughs> kind of scandal, like. <laughs> yeah, you wake up one morning, your tweet is in the Times. What has happened? Right. Yeah. Uh, but I mentioned this, <laughs> I think this is connected to the kind of public virtues because I don't know about you, but I found one of the most moving things in the 
that immediate post-election period where despite the fact that I, like I, I'm not I'm no dummy. I understood that things were going to shoot up for Trump on election night and then he's going to I understood those dynamics, although uh, when Florida started to come in, it was clear that there was a poll miss. And the only question is, how how big was the polling miss? And right. so, you know, uh, my heart rate jumped from a normal 60 up to like 80. You know, I have the little thing on my watch and I could see it. And it was like observing that, yes, you, you really are as, as screwed up as you feel right now. <laughs> like objective <laughs> evidence. Um, and um, uh, but nonetheless, I was trying to, you know, be, be equanimous about all these things coming in. Um, one, one of the things I found the most moving over the next several days were um, these short videos that people were posting on. Well, I saw them on Twitter. I'm sure you could find them otherwise of poll workers you know, these rooms, individual rooms where there were people in masks sitting at tables, filling things out, carrying over pieces of paper to another table where this kind of methodical, um, uh, I'm reminded of, of Matty Glacius' new uh, uh, newsletter, Slow Boring, but it's like this, this slow, methodical boring into, right, this problem. Uh, the, you know, these, these, you know, public servants just carrying out this, this function, it, it just seemed to me as I was watching it and I was listening to, to music at the same time. And, you know, Joe, I love music and how, you know, I, I had this whole emotional experience of, of gratitude and, uh, and just how, what's the right, it's, it's, it was almost majestic to see these poll workers just laboring away. And there was nothing, you know, so long as people believed in this idea that these votes would determine the result. And so long as we held on to that idea, like there's nothing the, that the most powerful person in the world could do to avoid the effects of what these individual workers were doing. And it just seemed, I, I imagine like, you know, like it seemed like something out of like a David Fincher movie with things like big rooms where you have a bunch of people slowly doing these actions, you know, uh, that will change the world. Um, I, I just found it the most moving experience, um, of the last, I don't know, however long. Hmm. Interesting. I have not seen uh, those clips. Um, I, I ha I'm sure I saw some occasional B-roll footage on a news something, or but that would that would show what you were just describing because the um, yeah the very simple uh, you know voting is apes making marks on paper. Yeah. Uh, and other apes counting the marks on the paper. Um, and it's like, yeah, that's how, that's what it is. Uh, and so you got to do it. Uh, got to count them up. And yeah. so the, just the process of like, it's sort of like watching someone knit a sweater. I mean, it's, what is the sweater? It is a series of mo of like arm motions um, that the yarn records. Uh, and that's the sweater. Like, what is the yeah. vote? It's a it's like a it's a number that records these behaviors, and you got to go through them. It, it, I just found it so inspiring to see to see them go through these movements, and knowing that these movements matter because we are all deciding right now that these movements matter. Right? There's nothing yeah, well, else. This is the uh, sense in which I think, uh, like, I I it, to me, it's the uh, it's the it's the magic. Uh, thesis um, <laughs> like it's basically all of this stuff is magic only in the sense that um it's like it works because we believe it yes it, it's or you could you could also just call it's all tinkerbell right tinkerbell all the way down um it, yeah my own 
she because we believe she is right? right and so like this is the this stuff works because we believe it works right now the of course the underbelly of that is it won't it won't work if we stop believing it which is why it's so malevolent to have people trying to persuade people it, it isn't working or right. that it isn't true or does or can't function right um, because belief is in the end all that really sustains it yeah, and, and my only amendment is, and this is related to that project, right? That, that it 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 can't be sustained by a a kind of a false belief. It can't be sustained by a belief that this is true as a just a as a non contingent matter of the universe, right? Uh, that like I think having an awareness, you know, having an awareness that this matters because we believe it matters, and we believe it for that reason. That's yeah. to me the heroic social step. That that's our shared social project, right? And of which we need more. Yeah. Um, and I just think you get there faster through ha- cultivating a kind of social awareness of this contingency, rather than, you know, th- adopting say large scale legal fictions like about the constitutions being kind of self executing in a grand way, right? That, no, this is this is a document around which we're going to coordinate, and which we're going to decide has certain meanings, informed by. And we have, you know, we can get into the meta arguments about like why we believe those things and that we maybe agree at a meta level, but you know, it is, you know, you get my point. Yeah. That it's going to coordinate us because we, uh, we agree that it is coordinating us. Yes. And and being agree and by, and we show that we're agreeing by coordinating. By coordinating. Right. And and we can have, you know, we can have higher order as I've talked about before, a higher order um, agreements about, kind of the way in which we agree to be coordinated, right? And so it gets to be maybe kind of complicated to think about that, but there's this, you know, at whatever level it is that we agree, that is our social project to which we are committed. Huzzah. Yeah. Are you done? Do you feel like that's enough? Is that a show? Sure. Do do you feel like this is something, can we keep this up? Is this something we could keep doing? Sure. I mean... I don't know. I don't know if we'll go back to like reading papers again. Maybe next time we'll just talk about coffee. Hey, there you go. Um, I'm going backpacking over Thanksgiving. Yes, I'm not. Uh, one day. One day. It, it, yes, that is entirely possible. I not just possible. I think likely. I'm oh, hopeful. Okay. I'm optimistic. <laughs> uh, I, I'm optimistic. Enough- th- I'm optimistic that we will get together again. I'm looking at your empty chair here in Oral Argument World Headquarters. Mm. Um, and and thinking, as you know, I think we're going to be selling our house soon. Yeah. And uh, it, yeah, a little peek behind the curtain here. Oral Argument World Headquarters is located inside of my house. Uh, <laughs> this is true. So it may be that, that you may never record in Oral Argument World Headquarters again. It, you may, it may be our new headquarters where we are in person recording again. Yeah, it depends on things like vaccines and such. Yeah, and you know that I'm a vaccine optimist and always have been, and a disease pessimist at the same time. Yeah, well, those are not inconsistent. No, I think I've, I think I've been proved exactly right. I claim victory. It's an, <laughs> it's an important part of my of my identity, Joe. That I'm absolutely right about this. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm. A, I I'm definitely a vaccine optimist. Yeah. You know, we can't talk much longer. We've gotten kind of long. But I I will say this. You know, my wife is a healthcare worker and she goes every day, not every day, but uh, some days in the office, some at the hospital. 
she goes into these exam rooms, you know, and is constantly at risk of, you know, she does what she can, but still like we haven't managed, we haven't managed to have all the perfect like PPE stuff. Right. I mean, it's like, it's ridiculous at this point, you know, it's been how many months and still it's like, but anyway, she does everything that she can to, to protect herself, but you know, at some risk and, and, and we have not, you know, my mom lives with this. I haven't, uh, you know, I think I hugged her once in the course of this whole epidemic for a very kind of particular reason, but, um, but we have not shared indoor space with her since the beginning of this pandemic in, at least in the United States in March. Yeah. And the very idea that, and part of that is because my wife cannot isolate in the, you know, in this way because she serves this, I think, very important and heroic function. And when I go through town and I see people at bars inside without masks, it is, um, it's hard for me not to feel hostility. I know that I shouldn't and, and, you know, I, I'm understanding, but like it is enraging um, that we can't do better than that. Yeah. So I, I, similarly, I am kind of enraged that, you know, we are doing everything we can, you and I, to keep our distance, despite being, I think, the best of friends. And uh, at least from my perspective, I don't know how you feel, Joe. I don't want to I don't want to speak for you. <laughs> I think you've summarized it well. OK. And and yet, you know, you've got all these jackasses going around town like nothing has happened and getting sick and and, yeah it's it's insane dispiriting yeah that it's insane too but it's dispiriting yeah insane dispiriting yeah i don't know yeah all these words you know um there you are well maybe we'll save that for the next show (laughs) okay joe it's been awesome to talk to you it has been a delight, hasn't it? Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and we've also been, uh, we've been talking and we've all, because we're Zooming, we also ha- are seeing each other, which is nice. Right. Yeah. Despite the fact that I just earlier today in a text message thread, you were, you were just delighting in the fact that you hadn't been on Zoom for a few days. And it, it felt- really is good. It really feels good. I mean, the, 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 of course, teaching on Zoom is different from having a chat with a friend on Zoom. Yeah. There you go. And I'm was most of my time on Zoom is about uh, teaching. Yeah. Uh, and it's better than the alternative in the sense that my hearing impairment is such that I can't effectively teach in a room with students in masks and me in a mask. Um, so I'm not complaining uh, as much as I'm simply observing that, um, you know, Zoom teaching it's it's a thing, and when it finally ends, I don't think I'll miss it that much. We could we could do a whole show about this, but like my experience with teaching the semester, with uh, you know we were um, required to teach in person a certain amount, and I uh, did some recordings, did some Zoom meetings, and then some in person with like half the class there, half not there. So the class was divided in half, and then each half of the class, about half of them showed up on uh, via Zoom, and half of them were were in were in person. Um, and I did all kinds of things, like I actually got a little CO two meter to kind of determine whether the ventilation rates in the room made it dangerous. So I did a lot of stuff on my own to figure out whether I could actually do this, um, yeah. consistent with like decent moral principles. And and it was I determined at least for my class where I was, it, it was safe. And, um, although, you know, I let the students kind of opt out. Um, but I, it was like, it was like being an air traffic controller 
like watching the, the students on Zoom and the ones in the classroom. And um, there was this great, you know, I read one of the things I read was uh, uh, Camus, the, the plague over the um, course of this pandemic. And he's got this great line in there about uh, when, when, the, when um, people are speaking with masks about how it was like a colloquy of statues. Um, which is exactly like what it feels. It feels like statues talking to each other. And then you turn to zoom and then you don't see the people on zoom. It's I, look, I, I am at my cognitive limits in class under normal circumstances <laughs> just because, you know, I don't have a script and I don't, I don't go in, you know, it's not just a pure lecture. It's like, okay, I, these are some main points I want to get to. Um, but I want to see where the conversation goes. Yeah, of course. Um, and and it, that takes all of my concentration usually. And, right. um, and this was, boy, um, and, but hats off to the students. I had some awesome students this semester who really, I think, made it work. And to see, you know, we talked about this from the beginning, like making it through something like, like this. Talk about the togetherness and collective projects that we were talking about at the beginning. Like everybody being in it with a spirit of solidarity and flexibility yep. is absolutely essential. And so hats off to them for that. But mm. yeah, when it when it works, that's a big, that solidarity is a big part of why it's working. Yep. Yeah. Well, speaking of solidarity, I think you and I are in complete agreement that we should stop the show now. Yes. Okay. I'm going to hit the stop button.